0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Brief Encounters. I'm Federico Varias, a program attorney at the DC Bar, and today I'm joined by my good friend and former colleague, Will Shook, who is a Judge Advocate General at the U.S. Navy. Welcome, Will.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Fede. It's nice to speak here again.
0: It's great to have you here. So we have a big project in the works, you and I, but uh, before we get to that, I just uh, thought I'd invite you over to chat with us today and just tell us a little bit about becoming a JAG. We have a lot of lost listeners and a lot of uh, recent graduates who are probably thinking of JAG as well. So we, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for them to learn a little bit more about how that is. So uh, tell me what got you interested in in becoming a JAG?
1: So Fede, thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to, to, to be able to speak to you and be on this podcast. I just wanted to get the formalities out of the way. All the opinions I express are my own and not that of the U.S. government or the U.S. Navy. But I actually got interested uh, in the Jack Corps through my work with you at the, at the Red Cross. Uh, we did law of war stuff and we did mostly educational work, I think. And through that educational public education work, I got to meet people from all walks of life, especially in D.C., uh, from diplomats to humanitarians to military officers engaged in this type of work. And I kind of developed an interest in um, operational law, law of armed conflict, and I thought the Jack War would have been a great segue into exploring that further and putting that into practice. So that's kind of how I got interested in it. Being in D.C. absolutely helped us, such a wonderful place to kind of foster that type of interest.
0: I had no idea. I always thought maybe you were, you started getting interested in it when you did a Jan Picktay and and Clara Barton, You did both competitions, right?
1: Yes, that's that's actually true. And so uh, I went to American University just like you. I think that that's definitely a shared background we have. And American University has this wonderful um, war crimes research office and law of armed conflict program as well. So I definitely uh, took the opportunity to explore that while in law school. And I guess Taking it a step before the Red Cross, the reason I got in, interested in the Red Cross in the first place was because of the Jean-Pictate uh, International Humanitarian Law Competition, which is supported by the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, and then right afterwards, the American version of that called the Clara Barton, which was an absolute blast. So, is this area of law that I have never really heard much about before entering law school, but having experienced sort of different aspect of it through law school and then through practicing at the Red Cross, um, I kind of said to myself, this is what I wanted to do. And what better place to do it than as a JAG with uh, the military and potentially in the situations where I would actually get to put that into practice, put what I learned into practice, especially having sort of a perspective of a former humanitarian having worked for the Red Cross.
0: I think that not a lot of people know this, uh, you know, it's very common in college for students to learn about international criminal law and hear about the the prosecution of war criminals and in history, whether it's Nuremberg or the international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, you know, or Rwanda, like those major atrocities from the 20th century. But I think that, uh, People, when they get into law school, that's when they really hear that there's this other branch, the one that's actually during the operations, during the military operations, a branch of law that actually regulates how that happens. And so, uh, you know, when, uh, just for listeners to know a little bit more, when uh, the competitions you were talking about, the Clara Barton competition, the the Jan Pigtay competition, both of those competitions really focus a lot on the actual operational issues that lawyers face when an armed conflict is happening. So they are not moot courts, but they are uh, simulation-based. So they t- they happen over several days, and each session is a different situation that students are just learning about and having to make decisions on the fly. So that makes them really interesting.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Fede. And I think one of my favorite scenarios in one of those competitions was a scenario where you were an ICRC delegate trying to convince um, a military commander on the ground to comply with certain provisions uh, of the Geneva Convention. And so uh, as a JAG, you know th- that's sort of the best position to be able to actually live that in real life. right? As a staff judge advocate, um, which is kind of like a general counsel to the commanders on the ground, you are the first person they would go to if there was a targeting package, if there was an operation and there are potential law of war issues. You are that person directly talking to the operational leader, the commander, and advising them on whether a course of action implicates the Geneva Conventions and the law of the armed conflict. And so that was just so exciting of a, of a thought to me to be able to potentially do that. Um, and one of the, I, I continue to volunteer with the Red Cross when I was in San Diego, and one of the movies that we actually showed during training uh, at Naval Justice School for the Navy, and then we used, um, as part of our public teaching programs in San Diego was Eye in the Sky, which kind of shows you exactly how a JAG would play into the equation of potentially uh, of, of a military operation. So I highly recommend watching that movie for an idea of how that actually plays out in real life.
0: That is a great movie. I've used it in, in my classes as well. And it's uh, it really like, it's surprising how how much they follow the rules in that movie. It's really very, very interesting. So I meant to ask you about your, the time you were volunteering for the Red Cross, even as you became a JAG, after you had worked for the Red Cross, you uh, and you became then you became a JAG, you continued to volunteer for the Red Cross in San Diego. So what were you doing there, like when you were volunteering for them?
1: Yeah, so I think I had so much fun teaching classes with you, Fede, the intro to the IHL course. So I wanted to continue to do some form of that in San Diego, and there was an opportunity called the Youth Action Campaign, which was effectively leveraging uh, the enthusiasm of our youth to teach the public about present IHL issues. And so I kind of jumped on that opportunity, and part of what I did was teach these youth IHL so that they can then, in turn, design a project, a public-facing project to teach the public about IHL. So there were high schoolers and college students who formed Red Cross clubs. And uh, we basically had these trainings where I trained them on IHL and they were amazing. They were so enthusiastic and fully embraced kind of these issues and made it their own and designed these amazing public projects um, to reach out to people both digitally and in person. So that was super rewarding. And I was really
0: glad to be a part of that. That sounds fantastic. I think that the youth programs are always so important. I think people don't don't know this, but the Geneva Conventions have a, actually have a rule that tells countries that they should educate their populations on compliance with international humanitarian law, what we've been calling IHL. And um, it's a key piece. And in the US, that role has been assigned to the to the American Red Cross. And so they they have this series of campaigns that just happen. Uh, all over the country, for youth to learn about the, the law of war, about IHL, for professionals to learn about them through a training course that they do in BC, and uh, through other educational programs that they they put together. But um, let me ask you, you did this with the, the Red Cross, but you've also like told me like, you know, as, as a JAG, you do other things. You, you're you not just focused on, on law of war issues. Like, in fact, at the beginning, you probably are not. So, uh, what have been the steps you've been going through, like since you started? And you've been a jack for like two and a half years now, I think. What have been steps that you've taken? Like, uh, what roles have you played so far that you can share with us? Yeah, of course. And you
1: know, two and a half years is relatively a short time in a, in a jack's career. Uh, so I'm re- relatively jun- junior jack. So with that said. One of the really cool programs that the Navy Jack specifically has is called the First Tour Judge Advocate Program. It effectively is an orientation program for your first tour, which is your first duty station. Uh, I was in San Diego, and they rotate you through the different aspects a JAG would usually encounter in their career. So that is military justice, then legal assistance, which is your civil law. So, so think landlord-tenant issues and helping sailors prepare for deployment writing them wills, that type of aspect. Um, And then lastly, command services, which is uh, that aspect we talk about most closely related with operational law and being a general counsel for a operational command such as a ship or some sort of other operational command. Uh, And so I had the very fortunate luck to be in San Diego where it's a huge fleet concentration area and there are a lot of different opportunities. Um, And so for that command services operational piece, I was able to advise a submarine squadron and even go go underway with a uh, nuclear submarine, which was a fantastic experience for the legal assistance piece. I helped prepare a lot of deployment packages for the Navy SEALs that were deploying. Um, One of the most rewarding experiences for me uh, absolutely was helping one of our veterans and do a bedside will for them, uh, for a veteran who was unfortunately very sick. And so to be able to ensure that uh, his family would be okay after he's gone was obviously very heartbreaking, but very important. And and that was very rewarding for me. Um, And then obviously the military justice piece, which is both criminal prosecution and defense for violations of of military law. That was very rewarding as well. And that's actually what I'm currently doing in Bahrain, uh, serving as a defense counsel. And that can actually, we, we can relate that back to the law of war piece, because you know, if we look at the big picture, most of the, the prosecution and punishment for violations of of the law of armed conflict are done by the military. Right. Um, so it, it it's the Jags who are, who are practicing military justice who are really who should be doing most of these cases. And it's not the international system. It's not the ad hoc tribunals or the international criminal court that is that is doing them
0: and that is a great point one that that really like we tend to forget about even even when we talk about enforcement of the the rules of war it's that really the the governments themselves the militaries themselves do a, a great part of the ensuring that that there's compliance with the rules yeah so you you do find yourself doing like the sounds to me like the side of of IHL that is seldom talked about because everybody thinks of the big picture that the big uh, historical tribunals and not uh, the smaller everyday practical things, the smaller prosecutions.
1: I concur with that, Fede. I mean, in theory, it should be the military who are, of each individual state. I'm not even specifically talking about the U.S. military. I guess if for the system to work, it should be the military themselves, states themselves, that are holding their militaries accountable for various misconduct that occurs.
0: Yes, Exactly. And the, the interesting thing is that, you know, it's increasingly done. And, uh, well, one of the things that people don't, don't think about is that even when war is happening, the law is being followed, right? So it's a, war may be a breakdown of uh, the laws of peace, but uh, it doesn't mean that the laws of war are not in effect when it's happening. So that's uh, really hard to escape the law, I think, in today's world. It's always present one way or another in something. I was curious. I wanted to ask you what a what a Jag office looks like, and I think your both your experiences are interesting. What you did in in San Diego, where it's like a big base and probably a bigger office, and then what you're doing now, deployed. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about how that is. So, I think
1: a a Jag practice is very unique. Um, And so, if we're just talking about the law legal office itself, um, that also runs a gamut. So, if we're in a fleet concentration area. In other words, any geographic area where there are a lot of um, Navy forces, uh, then you usually will have a pretty big office, you know, with junior attorneys, senior attorneys, supervisors and paralegal administrative support, of course. I am in a unique situation um, where I am not in a free concentration area and uh, I'm specifically overseas in Bahrain. And so in this office, because I'm a defense attorney, our defense office is just myself and a, and a paralegal. I do have a lot of support provided remotely uh, through our branch offices in Europe and our headquarters in the United States. But physically, I'm kind of out here, we kind of lovingly call it alone and unafraid um, with my paralegal. So I I get a lot of uh, flexibility and independence to do investigations and I do a lot of travel for both court uh, and to do case related work. However, the difference, I think, be, between this and working in a law firm or, to, or another legal office is that our organization isn't just the legal office, it's the, the Navy at large. So I get a lot of FaceTime and interactions with other components on base. And it's not just other jacks who I talk to in relation to cases. It could be the prosecutors, it could be the staff judge advocates who are the general counsels, uh, as, as we were talking about, to commands who may have input on ongoing cases. But I think it's the other sailors in the fleet who I get to interact with to just learn more about the Navy operationally so I can better understand the contexts for for the cases that are occurring, that are coming out of the fleet. And I think that's sort of the most rewarding part. I'm not just working with lawyers all the time or judges for prosecutors, I am working with the sailors themselves and going out there and seeing what they do for work um, and how they live. And, and that, that's been extremely eye opening being able to interact with people I think I, I wouldn't have been able to interact with had I been doing anything else, had I not been a JAG, and, and learning a lot from them directly. So I think that, that's really a fantastic aspect of the job.
0: Sounds so interesting. Let me ask you something, because I, I think that, that in your, your answer, this comes out, and it's a, your interest in public service. And I think since I've known you, that's been a, a focus of or, or something about who you are that, I, that has stood out for me. And so uh, after Red Cross, you went on to be a public defender for, for a little bit, and then you, you went to JAG. How, how has that experience helped you? Do you think, do you see it translating? Do you see the civilian experience translating into military?
1: I absolutely think so. I think it translates a lot specifically for my job as defense counsel, but also for my job as sort of a naval officer. I think as a public defender, I had to interact with people from who've, who's had very different backgrounds, as myself, different upbringing, who lived in different neighborhoods in New York City that I've never been to. And it, that job, being a public defender, required a lot of empathy. Um, I think a, a lot of trying to see things from different perspectives. And that's, you know, in addition to the usual sort of legal skills that you have to develop as a public defender in litigation and investigation. And so when I sort of joined the Navy, it was another experience in, like I was saying, meeting and talking to and leading sailors from very different backgrounds, from all walks of life. Um, And I think it required empathy and understanding and patience uh, and listening skills. And so I, I think a lot of those experiences of being a public defender in Brooklyn definitely provided a solid foundation for them, for them taking on that additional challenge of being both an attorney uh, defending sailors and uh, officer leading sailors and requiring that flexibility and um, that ability to be able to interact, motivate, lead, and follow people from all walks of life.
0: That's awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, I love hearing that it's translated into and helped build in, into this thing that you're doing now. So now we, we get to talk about the next thing we'll be doing in the in the fall. And so you and I are, are doing a program together. We'll be teaching a program in conjunction with the DC Bar and the American Red Cross on the loss of war. So we get to bring that to the DC Bar community and nationally, right? It's the first time I think that we'll be doing a national CLE for the Red Cross, and the Red Cross will be doing one for uh for the law of war for IHL. So it's it's an exciting project, and I'm really excited that we'll be getting to do this together. Yeah, I can't wait. For those of you listening, uh, stay tuned. In, in early in the in the fall, we'll have a, a new program for you, born in the battlefield. That will tell you the not only the history of the American Red Cross and how it was born in the battlefield, but it will also be covering many aspects of international humanitarian law or the law of warts it is also known with that i I don't know just want to thank you will for making the time to be with us today any final words
1: just wanted to thank you for for having me um, and, and allowing me to talk about something that i love doing and for allowing me these opportunities to continue doing it so thank you so much fede and i look forward to talking more ihl with you
0: Me too. I think it'll be fun. So thank you, Will. It's always such a pleasure hanging out with you and chatting with you. So thank you for making the time today. And thank you everybody for listening.